Thanks, Nathan. Good morning, Central. How's everybody doing? Glad that uh, you've had a week of daylight savings time under your belt, so your internal clocks are, should be a little bit back to normal. Um, normally, by this time in, in the morning, after preaching, uh, this is the third service now, I'm normally running on fumes, but I just went to Grand Central and got a double-calf, tall, skinny, mochachoki yaya, so buckle up. So whether you're joining us in person or online, we're glad you are here this morning. Now, by most definitions, I am an evangelical Christian in that I believe the Bible is true, that Jesus' death on the cross paid for my sin, that Jesus is the only hope of the world, and that the gospel needs to impact how I live my life. By most definitions, that's an evangelical. And so as an evangelical, I was really interested to see this story come through my newsfeed this week. It says, evangelicals are the most beloved U.S. faith group among evangelicals. <laughs> well, that's convenient. But look, look at the subheading, and among the worst rated by everybody else. That requires a little explanation. Let's, let's read. When asked about their views of the country's biggest religious groups, most Americans don't have strong feelings either way, except when it comes to evangelical Christians. In a Pew Research Center report released Wednesday, 27% of Americans expressed an unfavorable view of evangelicals, compared to 10% who have a negative view of mainline Protestants, or 18% who have a negative view of Catholics. So let's look at this chart here. Keep this in mind as I, I, I continue to read. Uh, in this report, evangelicals' critical reception wasn't the result of a lack of familiarity. Nearly two-thirds of Americans say they personally know someone who's an evangelical, and of those people who know an evangelical... 35% express a negative view of them. So get to know us even more and you'd like us even less. Here's the crazy thing about this chart. Look at the second line there. Those are people who self-identify as evangelical. Only 60% of evangelicals have a positive view of evangelicals. We don't even like ourselves that much. What is going on? They, they go ahead and, and quote NAE President Walter Kim. He says, The evangelical faith is being narrowly defined and misunderstood by many with long-term ramifications for our gospel witness. Too many, especially young people and people of color, have been alienated by the evangelical Christianity they have, been, they have seen presented in public in recent years. So on one hand, this shouldn't be surprising. Like, Christians have never really won popularity contests uh, in the world. Uh, we've been persecuted for hundreds of years. Jesus said you'd be persecuted because of me. Uh, the original disciples, like 11 out of 12 of them, I think, were martyred for their faith. Uh, so it shouldn't be surprising. But on the other hand, Colossians 4, 5, and 6 says, Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders making the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you will know how to answer everyone. And in laying out the qualifications of an elder in 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul says that one of the qualifications of eldership is that you have to have a good reputation with people outside the church. 
So it's important how people view us. So what is our reputation with those who, who don't claim our same faith? Well, there was one study released a few years ago, and in that, non-Christians describe Christians using words like hypocritical, judgmental, and too political. Now, do those words describe the character and nature of Jesus? Of course not. Then why do they describe his followers? Something is terribly wrong. And I think this problem is, is really, it's really pretty easy to diagnose, honestly. So for the last nine months, uh, we've, we've been in a sermon series called Extraordinary, a, a series, a study in the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, we've, we've looked at the values that Jesus explains are... Uh, personify what it's like to represent the kingdom of God. See, 13 centuries prior, Moses goes up on a mountainside and delivers the law that would be the foundation for the nation of Israel. People who were supposed to be set apart, who would be God's chosen people, shining a light on the nations. And now, Jesus goes up on a different mountainside and ushers in a new era, a new institution called the church. People who God writes the laws on our hearts, people who are supposed to represent him to a world who desperately needs him. And so over the course of like 29 different weekends, we have studied this passage, right? We've looked at it verse by verse by verse. And, and we've tried to apply it to our lives. We try to see what is it that Jesus is calling us to. And it turns out he's calling us to a lot, to, to lives of, of kindness and integrity, of generosity and love. He's calling us to live lives that are extraordinary. And as his sermon winds down, Jesus gives several warnings to us. He, he gives warnings about, about two gates and two roads, about wolves in sheep's clothing, about knowing a tree by its fruit, and then this last one that we're going to study today, about two foundations. And so if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 24. Uh, if you don't have a, a paper Bible or, or a Bible on your phone, go ahead and grab the uh, Bible in the seat in front of you. Let's actually, let's stand this morning and read this passage together. It will be up on the screen. Let's read. Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house, yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed with a great crash." 
When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like their scribes. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. You can have a seat. I don't want to go any further this morning without saying this. It is not my goal to send you on a guilt trip today. Okay, I'm not going to intentionally try to make you feel shame or fear or any other negative emotion. But, but I do believe that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. The Bible shows us truth, exposes our rebellion, corrects our mistakes, and helps us live God's way. And so not only should we examine Scripture, we should let Scripture examine us. And so let's allow Scripture to do its work this morning and see what happens, okay? So in classic Jesus form, he closes his most important sermon with a parable, a story using common scenarios to explain an important spiritual truth. And the, the truth that Jesus is trying to illustrate in this parable this morning is the importance of obedience. He looks out on the crowd of people who've heard his sermon and he says, there are two types of people sitting out here. Those who hear my words and obey them and those who hear my words and ignore them. And I think this Lack of obedience is really the simplest explanation for why we see headlines like the one I just read. People outside the church are tired of hypocrisy from Christians. They're tired of, of Christians who say they follow Jesus but don't live like it. Who say they believe the Sermon on the Mount but don't live it out in real life. They're tired of Christians who are bad neighbors who are bad co-workers, who, who go to their kids' soccer games and freak out. My wife wrote that line because guess who that fits? We go to church on Sundays and we sing songs of praise to Jesus. We hear sermon week after week after week. We fill ourselves with information. But it doesn't always result in transformation. I love how author Sky Jatani explains this. He says, this tension between praising Jesus and actually obeying him explains why so much of contemporary Christianity has lost its moral authority and spiritual credibility. Researcher George Barna puts it even more bluntly. American Christianity has largely failed because modern day disciples do not act like Jesus. Now, this lack of obedience is not a new problem. For centuries, the nation of Israel struggled to obey the commands of God. They were supposed to be set apart from the pagan nations around them. They're supposed to be holy. But time and time again, they rebelled. They acted selfishly. And the result was all kinds of evil committed against God, against each other, against their neighbors. And so Jesus has to do a reorg. He has to call anyone who would follow him and say, here is a new way to be countercultural. 
Here is how you stand out from the culture around you and you represent God to others. Now, my friend Christina Hitchcock recently pointed out the difference between the culture around us and what Jesus teaches, the values that he instills, what should be part of church culture. She says that the culture around us, the world we live in, values independence and autonomy and consumerism and self-promotion. What Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, teaches self-denial, self-sacrifice, dependence on God and humility. The Sermon on the Mount is counter-cultural, but, but it's also counterintuitive. When you read through the Sermon on the Mount, if you're anything like me, you'll say, everything in here goes against everything I want to be real in my life, like against my flesh. For example, like when I'm wronged, I want revenge on the person who wronged me. I don't want to turn the other cheek. Or when I do something nice for someone, like when I serve the poor or when I help people who are marginalized, I want a little bit of recognition. I want some affirmation. Like, oh, look at what a nice guy. But Jesus says to do it in secret. It turns out obeying the Sermon on the Mount is way easier said than done. And we get really creative in explaining it away, right? We, we'll say, well, you know, the Sermon on the Mount is, is probably just written for professionals, you know, for pastors and theologians, or, or it's just really relevant for the time of Jesus because our culture now, is, our, the way we, the world that we live in, there's no way that this is relevant. Jesus can't possibly expect us in this world of, of nuance. This is too naive. It's too spiritual to actually live this out. And so we listen and ignore. And in doing so, we're fooling ourselves. Look at what the book of James says. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Don't just listen to God's word. Do what it says. Now, the Bible calls Satan the great deceiver. And I, I love how Francis Chan combines these two concepts. He says, I honestly believe Satan is thrilled when believers pack out churches to hear the word of God and then walk away and do nothing and yet feel like they accomplished something. They're deceiving themselves. They're doing Satan's job for him. Okay, back to our passage. This is, is one of the simplest and most widely known of all of Jesus' parables. In fact, you probably learned a Sunday school song about it growing up. Okay, I'll, I'll start out. You guys finish. The wise man built his... Yeah, you got it. You know it. I'm not singing anymore. I'm done. So sometimes, even though we know it well, we misinterpret it. And so the, the common, the traditional interpretation is there's these two guys, and the wise man wants to build a house, and he says, huh, well, there's sand over here, and there's rock over here. Hmm, I'm going to choose rock. And the foolish man looks at the same situation, and he goes, oh, look at this beautiful beach. It's perfect to build. I'm just going to build right here. What could go wrong? Duh. Right? That's kind of how we misinterpret it. But here's the thing. When we read Luke's 
account of this story, we get some different insight. Uh, Luke chapter 6, starting in, in verse 47, he says, I'll show you what it's like when someone comes to me, listens to my teaching, and then follows it. It's like a person building a house who digs deep and lays the foundation on solid rock. When the floodwaters rise and break against that house, it stands firm because it's well built. But anyone who hears and doesn't obey is like a person who builds a house right on the ground without a foundation. When the floods sweep against that house, it will collapse into a heap of ruins. So Jesus isn't talking about building at two separate locations. He's talking about building with two different levels of planning and intentionality and effort. One guy builds right on the ground without doing any dirt work. The other guy does the hard work of digging down to the rock. You ever, you ever dug a hole, like a, a significantly sized hole? That is young man's work for sure. I, can, I guarantee you. I, I can speak from experience. My, my, uh, my youngest son wanted us to install a basketball hoop beside our driveway. And apparently to, get, to dig below the frost line, you have to dig to the core of the earth. And so I, I, just to make a long story short, um, digging this hole took four men, uh, two gas-powered post hole diggers, and one trip to the ER. Uh, and we ended up with a hole that was not all that impressive. It was like, I could maybe bury Pastor Adam in it. Maybe, <laughs> if I was lucky. I, I can't imagine digging a hole big enough to fit the foundation of a house on. That is hard work. But the thing is, we're all building something. We're building a family or a career. We're just building a life. And in building a life that's extraordinary, we face two temptations. Well, we probably face a lot more than that, but I'm, I'm a, I could only think of two. So we're going to cover two temptations this morning. Here's, here's the first one, and this is uh, the first set of blanks in your notes. The first temptation that we face is immediate gratification. One of the shows that, that my wife and I began watching uh, during this never-ending winter is, is a show about people traveling on the Oregon Trail in the 1880s. Talk about a lesson in endurance and patience. They could maybe travel on a good day, three miles in a day. They had all their earthly possessions on a covered wagon, and they ate whatever they could shoot and skin and cook over an open fire, all while just trying to avoid getting dysentery. Now, today, we travel 80 miles an hour. We can order online anything we want in the world and have it delivered to our front door and we're inconvenienced because Chick-fil-A is closed on Sunday. We've got it pretty easy. We live in a very impatient culture. We want everything now. Instant, immediate gratification. We're not patient. And Jesus calls this lack of patience foolishness. He says that, that a fool doesn't plan, doesn't prepare wants to take shortcuts, wants to cut corners, wants the, the gold medal without putting in the lifetime of training 
In this passage, builds a house right on the surface of the ground without doing the dirt work. And there's, there's plenty of, of spiritual implications in this, but the primary one is that, that a foolish person doesn't read and understand and obey the words of Jesus because it's either too boring or too hard. And that's the problem. We don't like to do hard things. Now, it, let me just kind of clear up any, any misconceptions. I, when I say, when I talk about doing hard things, I'm not talking about working to earn your salvation or working your way into God's good graces. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. What I am talking about is knowing Jesus. To know him is to love him. To love him is to obey him, even when it's hard. In raising our four kids, one of the things that, that we tried to instill in them was this sense of trust, that they could trust us. Because trusting that mom and dad knows better than you makes your life work out a whole lot better. And the best way for them to show love for us was not by giving us hugs and, and coloring us pictures, but it was to obey us. Look what 1 John says about this topic. For this is what love for God is, to keep his commands. And his commands are not a burden. Now you might be thinking, really? His commands sure seem like a burden. Like, you might be feeling pressure to perform, and, and, and sermons like this uh, don't provide inspiration. They, they just make you feel worse. They make you feel like, oh, great, there's one more thing that I stink at, one more thing that I need to, to do better at. If that's describing you this morning, then you need to hear these words of Jesus. Come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear and the burden I give you is light. A yoke was a wooden frame for joining together two oxen and a farmer would often um, connect or pair uh, a young, inexperienced ox with an older, stronger ox and hitch them together so they could pull the plow together so the older one could kind of show the, the younger one the ropes. Now Jesus uses this word picture and he says, I want to co-labor with you. My yoke is easy, not because the job is easy, but because I am bearing most of the load for you. So Jesus issues us this challenge and a reassurance he says, when you walk that narrow road of discipleship, I am going to walk it every step of the way with you. And when you are digging down to the rock, when you are building your house, I'm going to be right there beside you digging along with you. I'm going to be helping you build your house. Guys, let's face it. Being a Christian can be hard. And, and nobody really has what it takes on their own. Only when we're filled with the Spirit, only 
when we're directed and empowered by the very presence of God, can we live a life that's extraordinary. Now, when we initially read this parable, we skipped a preceding verse. Uh, Matthew 7.22, immediately before uh, our parable. He says, Jesus says this, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and performed many miracles in your name. And that, and that leads us to our second temptation in, in leading a life that's extraordinary. And that's mountaintop experiences. I think more and more Christians are relying on exciting external experiences as their primary means of spiritual formation. Whether, whether it's attending a large worship service or a Christian concert or driving to Kentucky to, to check out that revival, we want to have this emotional uh, you know, energy. We want this renewed sense of vision and passion. We want to go from spiritual high to spiritual high to spiritual high to, to experience the manifest presence of God. And, and whether those experiences are legit or not, eventually we have to come back down and face real life challenges. People want to do great things for the kingdom. Like Jesus expressed in this verse, prophesy and, and cast out demons and, and, and perform miracles. But people are not transformed primarily through external activity. Jesus doesn't change us from the outside in. He changes us from the inside out. My, my son is a, a freshman in college. And he's, he's doing all right. He's getting good grades. Future's so bright he's got to wear shades. Thank you for that fake laughter, children of the 80s. So he called me a couple weeks ago after attending uh, this big student ministry conference. There was 4,500 college students at this conference, and I thought he'd just be on cloud nine and tell me how excited he was about it. Uh, but he called and said, Dad, why don't I feel closer to God now than I did before this weekend? Why do I just kind of feel meh? And, and I answered him as honestly as I could. I just said, Son, I think it's because you're learning the lesson of walking with Jesus in the midst of the mundane. Because here's an important principle of spiritual growth. In order to live a life that's extraordinary, we need to be faithful in the ordinary. Uh, there are all kinds of, of books out there with titles like Radical and Come Help Change the World. But on that phone call with my son, I shared with him the, the least exciting, the least flashy, the least mountaintop experience verse I could think of. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12. Seek to live a quiet life, mind your own business, and earn your own living, just as I told you. That way, you'll behave appropriately toward outsiders, and you won't be in need. See, sometimes the Lord does show up at these mountaintop experiences, and it's great. But primarily, he speaks in a still, small voice. And he changes us. He helps build our foundation through things like prayer and confession and fasting and other spiritual disciplines. As we practice the presence of God in our regular, run-of-the-mill, everyday routine 
of life. There can be joy in walking with Jesus in the ordinary. That is how our foundation is built. Now, a disciple is a person who is spending time with Jesus and becoming like Jesus and doing the things that Jesus did. And the temptation is to ignore the first two and just want to do the last one, to do the things that Jesus did. Because Jesus said, if you believe in me, you'll do greater things than these. And that's exciting. But we have to remember, Jesus also did some pretty mundane things. He spent time in solitude and prayer. He helped the poor and the marginalized outside of the spotlight. He was humble and gentle and generous and loving and patient. Those things are not exciting. Those are not mountaintop experiences. Now, if we put ourselves into this parable and we think about building our house, maybe, maybe we want a house that's got vaulted ceilings and, and granite countertops and, and a walk-in pantry, but building an impressive house is worthless with a bad foundation. I was reminded of that earlier this week. Remember when we got that overnight rain? That next morning, I found myself in the basement of my newly remodeled house, vacuuming up water that was leaking in through a crack in our foundation. And I envisioned, as I looked at the creek that ran through my backyard, I envisioned this. And I prayed like I've never prayed before. Lord Jesus, don't make me a living parable. I get it. I already understand the lesson. See, wanting to do greater things, to have mountaintop experiences and build an impressive house without knowing and loving and obeying Jesus is dangerous. Because Jesus doesn't want you to be great. He wants you to make his name great. And this, this desire for, for greatness is tempting in ministry. We want to make a name for ourselves. Honestly, as pastors, sometimes, like we want to kind of be like a spiritual Chuck Norris. And this, this desire was recently documented in a podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Maybe some of you listened to it, but they documented how one church built a ministry empire on the personality of one charismatic pastor who had a big, big personality but he hadn't done the hard work of building his life on a firm foundation and the results were disastrous. Theologian Dale Bruner wrote this nearly 20 years ago. It's still relevant today. This quest for greatness rather than righteousness, for the sensational rather than the simple, for doing the charismatic rather than the moral, for speaking prophetically rather than compassionately, for being up-to-date at all costs rather than a loyal disciple of Jesus in all cases is a quest that will end only by a different kind of great, a great crash. So the question I'm asking us to consider today is this. Are we more focused on building impressive houses or firm foundations? Because there's one thing that Jesus guarantees in this parable. It's going to rain. He doesn't say that obeying him protects us from the storms, but protects us in the storms. We're all going to face storms. 
whether it's financial turmoil or, or health crises or marital strife or, or wayward children or accidents or, or addictions, it's gonna rain. And how you endure the storm isn't based on how impressive your life looks above the surface, but entirely based on your foundation. Are you building your life on power and prestige and popularity? Are you putting your hope in politicians or or prosperity preachers or in the Prince of Peace? Now you can trust in the shifting sands of of Instagram influencers and self-help gurus. You can pledge your loyalty to people who go on air and knowingly spread lies, or you can build your life on the rock of ages, on the chief cornerstone, on the one who says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And if you do that, you can say with confidence, on Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Now, the the last verse of this passage says that the people were amazed at the authority that Jesus had when he taught. But being impressed and amazed by Jesus is not the same as obeying him. I I said at the beginning of our time that I, I didn't deliberately want to cause you to feel guilt or shame or fear, but I do want you to feel hope this morning. And so I'm going to end with this. Don't wait until it's already raining to build your life on the rock. Be wise now. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly now. Hunger and thirst for righteousness now. Trust and obey now. And when you do, when the storms come, and they're coming, they will reveal the character that Jesus has already developed in your life. They will bring out the best in you. And maybe you're in the midst of the storms right now and you're asking, why God, why are you allowing this to happen to me as the floodwaters rise in your life? I'm gonna challenge you to ask different questions, not why, but what and how. God, in the midst of this storm, What do you want from me? And what do you want for me? God, how in the middle of this, how can I walk with you? How are you gonna use this storm to shape my life, to make me into the kind of person that you want me to be? And maybe you're here this morning, you haven't built your house on the rock. You haven't obeyed the words of Jesus because you just don't know him. You know about him, but you haven't trusted him to save you from your sins. You you don't really know him. So don't wait. Don't wait until the storms pound your life. You can begin a new life with Jesus now. If that's what you want, then you can pray something as simple as this. Jesus, I realize that my life is built on sand, but I want to build on you on the rock. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins that I may be made right with you. Turn, I turn to you. 
and I receive you as my rescuer and my ruler. I, I trust you with my life. I give you control. And now, God, make me into the person you want me to be. Amen. And if you prayed that prayer this morning, please indicate it on your communication card and drop it in the boxes on the way out. Someone from Central will be in touch with you and help you learn what it looks like to build your house on the rock. If you're experiencing storms in your life this morning, please come down and have someone pray with you. We want to intercede for you in the midst of the storms. For the rest of you, go and build your house on the rock, serving and obeying Jesus. Have a great day.